brothers and sisters, these things happened so that we may believe. Let us pray. Father in heaven, minister now to us. Minister now to us all that was established on that day, that Good Friday, so many years ago. Take, O Lord, that which was accomplished. Take, O Lord, that which was achieved for the sake of the healing of our souls for the sake of the salvation of our minds and our hearts and our bodies from the captivity of sin, O oh Lord, take all that was done there and bring it to effectual wonderment and power and manifestation here this night, we pray. Help us, O oh Lord. Help us, O oh Lord, to believe. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Brothers, can I get just a little bit more light in the house so that I can... I want to see you all better. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. There was a man that I very much wanted to see. I wanted to see him because he was a survivor of the Holocaust of World War II. I wanted to see him because he had written a most poetic, a most sort of poignant and yet wrenching book entitled Night. I wanted to see this man, Elie Wiesel, who had walked out of the concentration camps, walked out with his life, at least bodily so, but by his own account, had seen his very faith in God, as he said, engulfed by the flames. Twenty years ago, I had an opportunity to hear this man lecture. I don't remember all that Wiesel said on that night, but I remember being in the presence of one who had truly survived. And yet I walked away distressed, I walked away sad, because here was one who had had visited upon him immense doubt. It was a doubt that he did not want to have. It was a doubt that he did not want to own. A doubt, though, that decades later, when I heard him lecture, he still carried with him like a shroud around him, like a pall. What do we say to those who have spiritually doubted? Yes, Wiesel's doubt is particular and unique in terms of the particular experience that he had of epic proportion. But the experience of spiritual doubt is in no way unique. 
the experience of being plagued by a doubt we do not want. A spiritual doubt that we have not sought is in no way unique to the believer. What can be said? There's a beautiful account of what was said to Wiesel. What was said to Wiesel was said by a man who became a kind of father figure many years older than Wiesel, a man who was also Jewish, but a man who had found Jesus as Messiah. A French intellectual, his name was Francois Mauriac, and he and Wiesel had an encounter where they sat together. Wiesel told his story to Mauriac. He told the story of the camps. He told the story of his faith engulfed by the flames. And Mauriac would later write in the introduction to Wiesel's book, Night, he would write, what could I say? One who believes that God is good. What could I say to Wiesel and his doubt? I could have told him, Moriak said, that there was another one, one of his Jewish kinsmen, perhaps one who looked somewhat like him, who hung upon a cross that he might conquer the world. I could have told him that if the Almighty is the Almighty, then he will have the last word on every life lived. But instead, Moriak said, I wept and I embraced him. Now, what's clever, of course, is that Moriak also said all those things to Wiesel by writing the introduction to his book. And he said those things to millions that have since read the Nobel Prize winning book, Night, who have heard yet again the testimony that there was one who went to a cross, and when he went to the cross, he conquered the world. He not only conquered the world, he conquered our spiritual doubts. What can be said to those of us who know the profundity of spiritual doubt? More than answers. More than answers. What is needed for those of us mired in spiritual doubt is the healing power of the cross. For this is given to us that we might believe. I want to look tonight with you at the ways in which we handle our spiritual doubt and in the ways in which the cross and the work of Jesus on the cross speaks to that doubt. As I begin, let me make a clear distinction. There is voluntary doubt and there is involuntary doubt. Involuntary doubt is what I've described already. It's a doubt that's visited upon us. Perhaps it comes through a crisis or a tragedy or a sort of, sort of intellectual or emotional moment. We're not looking for it. It's a doubt we don't want. 
There is, though, a voluntary doubt. It might come in the same way, but it becomes a doubt that's familiar. It becomes befriended. Indeed, it becomes almost a matter of pride. It's a doubt that morphs into a skepticism, which fashions into a cynicism, which finds its way into the sin of unbelief. It's a settled doubt. It's a resistant doubt. It's a doubt that gives the personality just that superior edge and just that detachment from other things that are happening. That's a doubt that is sinful doubt that can be repented of even on this night, especially on this night. But there is a doubt that we do not want as well. How do we handle this doubt, this spiritual doubt? There are different ways to handle it, different ways that we approach it. Let me just mention a few tonight. One is that we handle this doubt by division. Here's what I mean. We have our spiritual lives and they're there, perhaps anemic, riddled with different doubts, different questions about what the Bible teaches or who God is or how God is active in our lives. But we, we don't want to abandon that spiritual life altogether. We, we're not ready to become atheists. And so we divide our spiritual lives from all the rest of our lives. And our spiritual lives become somewhat like that uh, sort of weakened, ill, aging grandparent that we visit every week. We don't want to come in too vigorous with them. We don't want to overwhelm them with the realities of life. We, we do our duty. We're there with them. And then we leave and go back to the real world. And some of us with our doubt break open our lives and separate them and live most of our lives in the real world. And there we have our anemic spiritual life, not abandoned, we're dutiful, and yet we're divided from that life. And the question that is the foundation of a divided life like that, the question that is a foundation that causes us to move this way and move that way is the question, is God really near? The doubt underlying a divided life is a life that doubts that God is near, that God comes into every facet of our life, that God desires to be a part of everything of who we are and what we do. When we divide our lives and move that way, it's only a matter of time when this life over here, this real life becomes a hidden life in different ways, a life of secret sins, a life of hidden compulsions. It's not our spiritual life. We will do what we will there. We'll try to manage it, self-control it in our own ways. But it's broken off and divided. And we begin to wonder more and more as our lives take on a characteristic of rebellion and assortedness and doing things we thought we would never do when we were more integrated with that spiritual life. Then we begin to think for sure that God is not near. God is not close. Others of us, we handle our doubt, we, we approach our doubt by deletion. We delete. We look at the teachings of Scripture, and we're not ready to abandon all the teachings of Scripture. We're not ready, again, to be made an atheist or to choose to be an atheist. So we take those things in Scripture that we just can't handle. We take those things in Scripture that do not accord with our understanding of justice or our understanding of goodness or our understanding of who God should be. 
and we delete them from our faith. Not the entire Christian faith, we argue. We might even say, I'm still a creedal Christian. But we delete certain behaviors and certain ways of living that the Bible is clear about, but we delete them, much like the Bible I saw in the Smithsonian Institute that belonged to our third president, Thomas Jefferson, where with a razor, he had so carefully cut out the very thin pages, the passages of Holy Scripture that he could not agree with. That's not shocking, really. Don't we do it mentally? Don't we do it behaviorally? This plagued me. Doubt by delete. I was plagued because I could not handle. I could not handle the teachings of Scripture that there was some kind of eternal separation that there was an idea of a hell, and that there would be those who would live eternally apart, condemned from God. I couldn't take that doctrine. It's, it's called the doctrine of hell in Christian theology. I wanted to help God along on that one. He was right in so many areas. And yet here, somehow or another, he'd had a bad day. And I deleted from my faith this teaching. I separated myself from it because underneath that doubt that I had was this question, is God really good? Is everything about God good? Or is there a shadow side to God, a hidden side to God? And if there is, then I have to delete that hidden side of God away. I didn't think for fullness that God was truly, fully, absolutely, entirely, completely good. For here was a teaching that wasn't good. I took my razor and I cut that part out. Or perhaps because your spiritual doubts do truly torment you, it's a doubt you don't want. You just want to deny that it's there at all. You don't want to be a doubter. You want to be a good Christian. You want to live this Christian life well. So you just deny that you ever have any doubtful thoughts, doubtful feelings. You push them down, you never talk about them, because your doubting question is, is God truly merciful? Is God truly understanding of my frailty and my sin? You're not sure he is. And so instead, you'll choose to live a life of denial of what really happens in your thoughts and what really happens in your heart. I was recently with a Christian, years of following the Lord, and years of suffering, one after another. And they finally said, in the midst of true anguish, I, I don't know where the Lord is right now. 
Bishop Stewart, I, I don't know where he is right now. I feel so bad even saying that. I shouldn't be saying that. I, I don't know if he's near. I, I don't know how he's good right now. I don't know. And it was a moment of incredible courage. Were they saying, I don't want to be a Christian? Oh, heavens, no. Were they saying, I want to move apart from God? Oh, heavens, no. They were saying, I, I believe. I believe. But I'm, I just have these doubts. What does the cross say? What does the cross say to this reality of our human condition, to this reality of spiritual doubts that we do not want. We read from the book of Isaiah, chapters 52 and 53. You can turn there now in your order of service. This was written several hundred years before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It was written by a writer, a a poet, he was called a prophet because he was able to look into the future based on who he knew God was and speak of the things of God still to come. And indeed, in these two chapters, he speaks of the reality of Jesus Christ, doesn't name him Jesus, but speaks of a God, the Son of God who will come and who will die upon a cross. It's called the Song of the Suffering Servant. It prophesies about the cross. And here we hear the word of the cross. Here we hear the preaching of the cross already, hundreds of years prior to the actual work of the cross, ministering the cross of Jesus Christ giving us the gifts and the establishment of the cross. Here the cross speaks into the human condition. Here the cross speaks into the spiritual doubts that we do not want. But the cross says, and the prophet says about the cross in Isaiah 53, verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. It's precious to carry a sleeping child. Even though I've been the senior pastor for 15 years, I'm still, with my family, often one of the last to leave. And we'll get our children into the van and leave the church late at night, and the baby or one of the younger ones will fall asleep on the way home. We'll pull up in front of the house, and I will do what I have done hundreds of times. I'll work my way into the van. I'll unlock them from their car seat. I'll get them out, and I'll place them on my chest, and I'll carry them, carry them up the stairs, dead sleep weight, everything leaning into me, and I'm so close to my son or my daughter at that moment. How close, how near the Lord is, that He carries our griefs, He bears our infirmities. 
Oh, to those who have divided their lives one for another, hear the word of the cross that God is near, so near that his heart comes up against your very heart. His arms wrapped around your very arms. It is the proclamation of Scripture that God is near. He bears our griefs. It is a proclamation of Scripture that is by his very wounds, Isaiah teaches. By his stripes, referring to the marks across the Lord's back prior to his crucifixion, referring to the wounds in his hands and his feet and his side. It is from there that we are healed. That's how God chose to heal us. God chose the most intimate, that which would cost him the most to heal the humanity that he loved so dearly that has fallen so far from his original design and intent and joy. God chose to heal us through his wounds, the wounds of Jesus Christ on the cross. And in that, we can proclaim, yes, God is near. And yes, God is good, entirely good, fully good. See no shadow upon this cross, no hidden side of God. He is the goodness of God and the love of God that pours out his very presence upon us to heal us. Sin sick souls, doubt filled hearts. I thought as I worked through this issue of the doctrine of hell, I thought as I ponder whether I would become a universalist, one who believes that all are saved without necessarily assent to life in Jesus Christ. I thought that I would figure it out one day. I, I thought that I would work it through and read enough books and have enough conversations and come to a conclusion. I was or I wasn't. But that wasn't how it became resolved. Instead, I came to this church in the middle of that doubting process. I sat. And I heard of Jesus Christ who wanted to heal me by his wounds. I heard of Jesus Christ who wanted to carry me. And by the grace of God, I believed that it might be true. And I began to know the healing of my mind and my heart and my body, healing of compulsions and healing of anxieties, the healing of past heinous sins that I had committed, that I had done. And I knew the goodness of God and I knew the nearness of God. And it was there and then that I said, I don't fully understand this doctrine. I, I don't fully understand the details of why this would be, but I know that God is good and I believe. I submit. And I believe. I'll never forget a moment in my graduate studies. 
a lecture from a most brilliant theologian. It had been a whole semester of systematic theology. And at the end, he lectured on the doubts that we might have in particular doctrines of the Christian faith that are difficult to assent to and understand. And he leaned, came around his podium, and he said, I don't know all the answers to the questions you might pose to me after I've given this lecture. I, I don't know how to answer all your spiritual doubts. But I know Jesus, and he's good, he said. And that's enough. Don't overcomplicate your spiritual doubt. Don't spend all of your energy going through your Bibles with the razor deciding which passages should be kept in and which passages should be removed. You don't need answers, first and foremost, as important as they are to wrestle through, and they are. But first, come to the healing of the cross of Jesus Christ. Finally, we read in verse 6 of chapter 50, we read that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord knows our frames. The Lord already knows our doubts. He knows that we are like sheep, spiritual sheep, who are plagued by spiritual doubts that we do not want and that we are tempted to go astray. He knows these things. He has told us these things and that he knows these things about us hundreds and hundreds of years before he even went to the cross that we might be clear that this God is a God who understands the human condition, that this God is a God who is fully and truly merciful. When we are plagued by doubt that we do not want, we feel as if we are utterly alone, completely isolated. Our lives become lives of monologue. And what is proclaimed here is that God in his mercy invites us into profound dialogue. He knows that we are sheep who have gone astray, and he has acted on our behalf to bring us into dialogue and communion and relationship with him. We are known, and in being known, we need not fear condemnation in Jesus Christ. But instead, the freeing of our souls and the cleansing of our sin Oh, that day in our marriage, when after Catherine and I had argued, and I had become unnecessarily and sinfully angry in that argument, and Catherine, she, I could see her face right now, she backed off and she said, I know when we have this kind of conversation, it makes you angry. But I know that underneath it, it's not that you're angry at me. I know this isn't really about what we're talking about right now. I, I, I know you, Stuart. 
And I know we can get to the other side of this conflict. I know you. Brothers and sisters, God is near. God is good. God is merciful. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.